This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by Athletic Brewing. Athletic Brewing is pioneering a revolution in non-alcoholic craft beer. They use high-quality, all-natural ingredients to create great-tasting brews that are suitable for everyone and every occasion. This is fully fermented craft beer that just happens not to have alcohol. It's low in calories, and it tastes great. So if you want to keep a clear head and drink healthier, Athletic Brewing is here for you. Visit athleticbrewing.com. You'll get free shipping nationwide, and if you use the discount code FRIEDEGGFALL20, you'll get 20% off your entire order between now and November 1st. That's athleticbrewing.com, FRIEDEGGFALL20. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. When we think about Harding Park's demise, it's one thing to look out on a course you love and see dried out fairways and greens with daisies on them and bunkers with no sand in them. That's one thing. It's another to see your golf course turned into a parking lot. Uh, I'm Bo Links. I am a lawyer by training. I practiced law for over 45 years in San Francisco. I've played golf for almost 60 years in San Francisco, uh, largely on public courses. And I've always been someone who saw great beauty in these golf courses and had so many great memories playing them. I was convinced that people had to stand up to preserve them. I've always been motivated by a phrase that I heard from Ken Venturi, where he said, without public golf, the game withers and dies. And when they held the 1998 U.S. Open at the Olympic Club, which is just across Lake Merced from Harding, they needed a place to park the cars. And somebody in their infinite wisdom decided that Harding Park was perfect for that job. And so Harding Park, this great municipal masterpiece, was transformed into a parking lot. For me, that might have been the low point. This is Fried Egg Stories. I'm Garrett Morrison. In this episode, we tell the story of Harding Park Golf Course, of how it went from the pride of San Francisco to a parking lot. And now, this week, to the venue of the 2020 PGA Championship. But bigger picture, this is a story about city golf. When Harding Park was built, municipal golf courses were symbols of civic vitality, of affordable recreation for the masses. As public works went, they were popular and relatively uncontroversial. Things are very different today. Most municipal courses have become casualties of budget cuts or drains on local governments or lightning rods for debates about land use. Harding Park at different times has been all of those things. It's been the best and the worst of city golf and everything in between. With the PGA Championship approaching, 
wanted to sort through all of this. So last week, I sat down with Bo Lynx. You're, you're a San Francisco guy. through A San Francisco native, grew up in the Richmond district, used to put my clubs on my back and walk up to Lincoln Park to meet an old friend of mine named John Susco to play golf where we'd cut in at the seventh hole and start playing. And we knew that, that Lincoln was a little bit of a course, always very scenic, but sort of the place where beginners went to start out and learn the game. And when you kind of graduated to the next level, you went over to Harding, which was the big course. That was the championship course. And I can remember the first time I went over there after waiting the three, four hours to play, getting out on the golf course and some of the undulations in the course, we'd get to holes and I would look up at the green and I'd turn to the guys I'm playing with and i go, is that flag in front of the bunker or behind the bunker? You couldn't tell because it was like tricking your eye. And there was this utter fascination with seeing things like that that made you want to go out, play the course, and learn it, and then come back and play it once you had learned it. By the time Bo started playing Harding Park in the early 1960s, public golf in the city already had a long history. San Francisco was one of the early adapters to urban golf. By 1902, there was a little three-hole course out where Lincoln Park is in an area that was largely a graveyard. But there was three holes, and people played it. And by 1917, had finally expanded to 18 holes. But there was a problem. More people wanted to play the golf course than they had room for. And so they decided to build a new municipal links on the shore of Lake Merced. And in 1922, the Recreation and Park Department hired Willie Watson, who had worked on the courses at the Olympic Club, to design uh, and supervise construction for a new course at Harding Park, what became Harding Park. But what you have to put in context historically, in terms of the era and what it was like, San Francisco burned to the ground in 1906 after a devastating earthquake. And yet, within nine years, the city was rebuilt to the point where it held a World's Fair in 1915. And then 10 years after that, we had Harding Park. And Harding Park wasn't the only construction project on the books. They rebuilt City Hall, downtown San Francisco, the Opera House, the Symphony Hall, the public library, the museums, all kinds of things. And it was an era where people could get things done, and they did get them done. And most importantly, the quality of the craftsmanship that you see is just, it's almost like it's a lost art. You know, the, the stonework, the woodwork, the, the grandiose architecture. Um, it's unbelievable, and it transformed the city from rubble into a majestic place that, say, world-class city was then, is now. These were government projects for the average person. You know, Harding Park wasn't supposed to be a private country club. It wasn't a private country club. It was a public golf course played by ordinary people. Um, I mean, it was built in 1925. 
So it's 95 years old because it hosts a major for the first time. I'm Ron Kreitschik, and I cover golf for the San Francisco Chronicle. But it was built in 1925, kind of a glorious era for golf course architecture. You know, think about all the courses, you know, the same architects who built Harding, built Olympic Club right across the lake. And that was an era in the 20s and 30s when uh, Alistair McKenzie was building tons of courses in Northern California from Cypress Point up to Meadow Club. And golf was really uh, in in an incredible growth spurt, an incredible period of architecture. If you talk to a knowledgeable San Francisco golfer, like Ron Karczyk, about the original design of Harding Park, you'll probably hear a lot about how the course is routed. That is, the path it takes through the property. You know, it starts out on the inside. All the first nine holes are all in the inner part of the course. And then the the back nine kind of weaves around the perimeter. And as you go from 10, 11, 12, 13, 13 green, you get your first view of Lake Merced. And then 14, 15, 16, all the way down the stretch is along the lake. And it sort of builds in exhilaration, I guess is probably the best word. Um, And then 18 is the shot over the neck of, of the lake. And it's that kind of crescendo, if you will, where the music picks up, the tempo picks up. Great golf courses all have this sense of pace. It's like listening to a piece of music, except you get to walk through it. And it's a layout that from the day it opened to today has always produced great golf. It's produced exciting golf. And the people who have won there have been great golfers. And it goes all the way back to future major champions like George Archer and Johnny Miller and Ken Venturi and Bob Rosberg, kind of San Francisco's Grand Slam right there, growing up on the course. Ken Venturi's father actually ran the pro shop for many years at Harding. And uh, Venturi played Harvey Ward, who was U.S. amateur champion, in the title match of the San Francisco City Championship in the 50s. And there were 10,000 fans out there. It was front page news in the Chronicle the next day. And that really uh, added another layer of uh, prestige to the course. With golf's popularity soaring, the city decided to make an addition to the facility. In the original layout for Harding, there was an interior gap in the architecture that was just, if you will, open pasture. They were practice holes. People used to go out and hit balls there. Ken Venturi is one of the great examples. Harvey Ward, too. They'd go out there with their own balls, and they'd beat them until dark. But here they had this area right inside Harding where they could put nine holes in for a short course. It was supervised by Jack Fleming, who was the golf superintendent in San Francisco. He was on Alistair McKenzie's crew years ago, and they named it in his honor. They called it the Jack Fleming Nine. And it was a damn good little golf course. Then there, something else happened. In the 1960s, early 60s, they started playing the Lucky International. And that was where I first saw Arnold Palmer. And he was playing my golf course. And Jack Nicklaus was playing my golf course. And so was Gary Player and George Archer and all those other great players. And to know that you could go out there on Saturday morning and play the same course that they played, well, that took on a whole other meaning. You can't really describe that in words. It's a feeling you have in your heart. That's what makes places like Harding Park stick out so vividly in your memory.
It's knowing that you played where they played. There was that pride among regular golfers that this was a special place, that this was not just another public course, and that, you know, as San Franciscans, they needed to protect that. And that's what Harding sort of represented, I think. Golf's available to common players, common people. It's not an elitist. It doesn't always have to be an elitist sport. Uh, you don't have to belong to a country club to have a good golf experience. And it was really, a, you know, a jewel of a municipal course then before it kind of fell into neglect. Um, what happened to Harding Park in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? How, how do you explain that and what did you observe? Well, at some point, I think the city had enough people tugging on its budget with other needs, which were all legitimate needs. Money just got diverted and Harding Park got forgotten. And after that, the course sadly fell into a very bad state of disrepair. And when I say bad, I mean really, really bad. If you look at pictures of, of what happened, there were completely dried up fairways with huge fissures in them. It was almost like there was another earthquake that came along, but it's just the ground dried up. The clubhouse was run down. I mean, there was open wiring everywhere, not behind walls. Things were taped to counters. The, there were no computers back then. It was a pretty broken down operation. You know, it was so sad that this had happened to a golf course that was so great. And there, there came this movement that said, we've got a history here. We've got something that's been handed down to us that's worth saving. And the one person with whom that message resonated more than anybody else was my friend Sandy Tatum. When I think of Sandy Tatum, I think of the most complete human being I've ever met. The pedigree looks like this. He went to Stanford. He won the NCAA Individual Golf Championship. His team won the team championship. He was selected to be a Rhodes Scholar. He was educated then at Oxford and earned a degree there. He came back to the United States and became a lawyer. He became the president of the United States Golf Association. He played amateur golf competitively all his life. And when you spoke to Sandy, here's a man who spoke in full sentences, not phrases. There were no catchwords. It was a complete thought. And you might ask him a question and there might be a pause. That's because he was actually thinking of his answer. And when you got that answer, you drew back and you said, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Do you, do you have any specific memories of playing with him at Harding Park? I played a lot of rounds of golf with Sandy Tatum, but the most memorable was in the first tee tournament that's held every year. And this one year he invited me to play with him and with Harris Barton, who's retired from the 49ers. And so they stick this young guy with us, young stockbroker, nice kids, about 23 years old. We're going out, we're having a good time. 
and it starts to rain on about the seventh hole. And we're going up the ninth fairway, and Harris Barton leans over to me and says, Hey, Bo, I think I'm going to stop after nine holes. Could you ask Sandy if it's okay? And I said, Harris, you're an all-pro offensive lineman. You ask Sandy if it's okay. And he, he didn't have the balls to do it. So I went up to Tatum and I said, you know, Harris is thinking of stopping. And Sandy just, he didn't get mad or anything. He just, hell, if he wants to stop, let him stop. We're going to keep going, aren't we? I said, yeah. So Harris drops out. We go along, we play 10, 11, and it's really coming down. I've got some rain gear. Sandy's got some rain gear. But this kid has nothing, and the kid is dripping wet. And so we, we get to the 12th hole, and Sandy, at the age of, you know, 90, he can still crack the golf ball. It echoes off his club face, still. And he just smokes one out there. And this kid kind of hits kind of weak fade to the right, and we're looking for his ball in there, and I can see he's kind of dejected. And I say, son, you're pretty wet. You've just been out hit by somebody who's about 65 years older than you are. Why don't you go in? He takes off. Now it's me and Tatum and a caddy. We play two more holes and the sun comes out and Sandy pars the 14th hole, 470 yard par four at the age of about 90. And he turns to me and he says, Lynx, this is why we stay out here. That's Sandy Tatum. That's playing golf with Sandy Tatum. He never quits. And in the late 1990s, the man who never quits set out to save Harding Park. At first, Sandy Tatum made quick progress. He was well-connected, both in golf and in politics, and soon he had the PGA Tour on board. Commissioner Tim Fincham agreed to hold a future event at the new Harding Park. Tatum also got San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown involved and started to make allies in the city's parks department. But ultimately, it was the San Francisco Board of Supervisors that would have to approve the renovation. And the supervisors, along with their neighborhood constituencies, weren't exactly gung-ho. Okay, uh, so Sean Ellsberg. I am now San Francisco Mayor London Bridge Chief of Staff, but at the time of the Harding Park renovation, I was a legislative aide to then Supervisor Tony Hall, and the district he represented is the district that included Harding Park Golf Course. You had a lot of different constituencies out there. You had your old guard that liked the fact that they could pull up at 7.30, drop five bucks, play 18 holes, have lunch maybe drop another five bucks, play another 18 holes. And they were the club and don't mess with what we got. It was their country club. That was a very loud constituency. And then you had the plenty of folks who would look at us and say, wait a second, we're going to invest tens of millions of dollars in that rich white man's sport when I've got swings in the Southeast sector that are rusty and falling apart. Sean Elspern's boss, Supervisor Tony Hall, basically agreed with those complaints, especially the ones from the Harding Park regulars. I mean, he had gotten elected in a very difficult race, and some of his biggest supporters were Harding Park Men's Club folks, and they were in his ear. That was really the only perspective that he had. 
and it got framed initially as privatization of the municipal course, giveaway to the PGA. And that initial, I remember well, that initial hearing was a late afternoon and it was just bad. He's talking about a subcommittee meeting in spring 2001, when the Board of Supervisors first considered Sandy Tatum's proposal. It's a committee room. There's an elevated dais. Tony was a member of the committee, three supervisors, but it was Tony's show. So they just let him run the hearing. And Tony was a, um, Tony was not a uh, quiet guy. If he had a problem, you knew it. And he liked to point out problems. And there was also an element of Tony as a bit of a showman. And Tony was playing to the crowd. And Sandy came in in his beautiful suit the coiffed hair, the Stanford vocabulary, the Rhodes Scholar, right? He was a Rhodes Scholar, I think. The Rhodes Scholar vocabulary and the charm of a old world gentleman versus these guys who were showing up in their Ben Davies and their uh, 49er warm-up. Uh, looked like they had all played earlier in the day and were looking to get out of the hearing to go play once more. And there were probably, I don't know, 15, 20 of that group who came and denounced Reckon Park, who denounced Sandy, who denounced the PGA. This is our course, no privatization. Leave it as it is. And Sandy got up there by himself and tried to make a pitch. And, you know, he and Tony really hadn't met yet. I don't think Tony had any real appreciation for who Sandy was and what he had done in his life. Tony was a bit abrupt, cut him off, and uh, Sandy did not win that room that day. Uh, But Sandy was, as always, the perfect gentleman, and he didn't burn any bridges. He didn't take any personal umbrage. And Sandy, aside from being probably the smartest man I ever met, He's also the most determined man I ever met, and he wasn't going to take no for an answer. And one of the things that was very important to him is that golf isn't just a game you play. It's a life you live, and the game will teach you things about yourself that if you learn those things and adapt those things to your daily life, you will become a better citizen. And that's where the idea emerged for the first tee. The proposal became not only to renovate the golf course, but to establish a chapter of the first tee at Harding Park. Now, back then, the first tee was new on the scene of youth programming. The idea was to teach golf as well as values and to reach out to underrepresented communities. We're not building a golf course, we're building a school. We have to change the culture. We have to change the world. And one of the ways we change is one young person at a time. And the first tee can do that. It was central to the mission of Harding Park. Harding Park is central to the mission of the first tee. And so slowly and with increasing speed, the movement built. And one of the things Sandy asked me to help him with, and I wasn't the only one, mind you, was when there was going to be a meeting, he says, can you turn out the troops? And what he really meant was, can you turn out folks who will get up to that microphone and say, we need this. That coupled with the first T and the people who would use that, you started to create something, not all at once, but with a momentum that built 
where do you want to be on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? And in San Francisco, people slowly warmed up to the concept. And then, you know, I think we also caught a little fire. As much as Sandy was absolutely a big part of this, I think Harding Park also became a beneficiary of the early 2000s Tiger Woods phenomenon, right? I don't think we were the only course that benefited from him being all over the place. And yeah, Tony turned a little bit of a corner and saw what the benefits could be and then became a great champion of pushing it forward. The big question was who's paying for it? The Board of Supervisors didn't want to pay for it. I understand that. I mean, I like it. I understand that. Sandy didn't like it. He understood it. So he set out to find some way to stitch together the financing. And this open space fund was there. And he had a liaison in the city attorney's office who was keen on the idea that this could be a great use of this money that could have a lasting impact because of the first T program. And so they got the money component put together. What I haven't mentioned yet is when you have a venue like Harding that can be a major draw for professional competition, it's the revenue it brings into the city. Look at the economic benefits, tourism, the exposure to have San Francisco flashing on television screens all over the world that you don't have to buy that coverage. You get it for free. Now, yes, it's a city asset. Yes, there's an investment in keeping it up and restoring it and all that. But investments pay dividends. And that's how we got all these golfers, non-golfers, hotel promoters, tourism operators, unions, everybody to get on board and say, this is a project we want to get behind. We want to see this happen. Let's go. And lo and behold, Sandy got his golf course. In 2002, the Board of Supervisors unanimously approved the renovation plan. But plenty of San Franciscans were still unhappy. I'd say one of the trickiest components of the whole thing was dealing with the golfers at Harding Park. Because what they feared legitimately was the spike in greens fees. And I'd be less than candid if I didn't acknowledge there are people who are still upset about that. I don't think they ever got over it. I think they're, I mean, frankly, what's it been? 15, almost 20 years. Uh, I'll still run into a couple of those folks, just say on the neighborhood court or whatever, uh, and still get the dirty looks. People are still upset. Whether they liked it or not, though, Harding Park was going to become something new. And the PGA Tour had a guy named Chris Gray who came in and made some subtle changes that were significant. But this is basically the same golf course with some, a little bit of new bunkering and obviously new, new green complexes, but where the old greens were. And basically took what were great bones and put new skin on the frame. And you just came out with a golf course that we all knew when we watched it being reborn, how great it was going to be. But you never know until you give it a test. You know, you can build the best car, but you got to turn the key and put it on the road and see how it handles. And that road test, that moment, that day, that time was 2005 
when the Amex Championship came to San Francisco. The World Golf Championships American Express Championship. Take the top 50 golfers in the world, put them in a fascinating city on a legendary public golf facility, Harding Park Golf Course. And nobody knew what was going to happen. Were they going to shoot 20 under? Were they going to shoot even par? Were they going to laugh at the golf course? Would it be not up to snuff condition-wise? Nobody knew. And we all know now what happened. You had what has to be one of the great competitions in the history of the PGA Tour. Tiger Woods and John Daly. You couldn't have had a greater contrast, a greater sense of excitement. Just needs to get it on the green would be, oh, right at it. It's going to be, oh, it's a great shot. Oh, and a good backspin. My, the crowd go nuts, standing ovation. You know, one of the things that I said when we were getting ready for the last round, somebody asked me how I'd describe it, and I said, you're not going to measure this thing with a calculator. You'll measure it with a voltage meter. The roars, the excitement in the crowd, they love Daly just as much as they love Tiger. To have it end the way it did when he missed that little three-footer on the third playoff hole was kind of sad. Oh, no! it is. And Tiger Woods wins this American Express Championship. But it was, a, it was a great competition and left incredible memories in everybody's head. Bo was in the press tent that week, and he had a question for John Daly. And I said, hey, John, what would you say if someone told you that when they played the Open at Olympic, they parked cars at Harding Park? And he said, if you ask me, they ought to play the Open at Harding and park the cars at Olympic. And he just, he loved Harding. And he, like everybody else, just couldn't believe what had happened. And when he learned that, he said, how did they turn this around so fast? Only two words, Sandy Tatum. So what do you, what do you hope out of, the, uh, out of the PGA Championship? Well, number one, I hope it's a dramatic finish. And number two, I hope we get a great champion. It's going to be another test to see what Harding Park produces. And my prediction is it will produce greatness as it always has. So that's one possible way to end the story. But with City Golf, things are never that simple. This is where I should lay my cards on the table. I lived in San Francisco for three years and I played my share of rounds at Harding Park, or what's now known as TPC Harding Park. I don't think it's a great work of golf course design. Now, I hear what Bo Links and Ron Krojcik are saying about the drama of the closing stretch on Lake Merced and the quality of champions it's produced. No arguments there. But I wish the course had more hole-to-hole -hole variety, more interesting greens. I wish it were just more fun to play. 
I mean, nine times out of 10, I'd rather go to the municipal courses at Lincoln Park or McLaren Park. But you know what? That's just my opinion. The fact that Harding Park has been popular for 95 years speaks for itself. But the more important point is that golf courses are more than architecture. And few of them demonstrate that point more clearly than Harding Park. I've heard so many people try to knock what Harding isn't. Oh, it doesn't have all this amazing architecture and the greens aren't aren't that complex. They're very basic. It's not about the course itself or the architecture. It's about the sense of community that it has within the fabric of San Francisco, a world-class city. Yeah, my, my name's Joe Shasky III, um, fifth-generation San Franciscan, lifelong uh, lover of sports here in the Bay Area. I host the show on 95.7 The Game, but uh, my, my dream round is me, my grandfather, who lives right down the street from me, my father, and my brother. And, and we, we play all over this, the city and, and the immediate Bay Area every single weekend. Joe's memories of Harding Park go back to his childhood. Like my dad would take us out there in the early evenings after baseball practice. My dad's a good golfer. And we only had like a club or two, me and my brother, some sawed off clubs. And we would just hit the ball. And he would say, hey, by the time I get to the green, your ball better be on the green. Like pick it up and run here or, or figure it out. And so that's what we grew up thinking Harding was. Today, Harding Park looks different, but in many important ways, it's exactly the same. When I go out to Harding, uh, I usually play the, the, the Fleming Nine every Friday with my grandfather. And to me, that's it's one of the greatest places in the world because my 85-year-old grandfather can get around in an hour and a half. And if you're living a busy city life where you're coaching and your kids are going to school and you're working multiple jobs, it's hard to squeeze five, six hours of golf into a normal work week. Like It's just, it's really difficult. And that's where Harding comes into play. I take my nephews and my nieces out there. They're all part of the First Tee program. You get to see all kinds of the the representation of golf which makes it so special for me is seeing all ages all demographics all financial backgrounds and and it just is a melting pot just like the city of san francisco is for golf and yet to say the least not everyone in san francisco feels the same way about city golf I'm Sasha Perigo, and i'm a housing justice advocate and a housing columnist for the san francisco examiner yeah, so honestly, I'm pretty unfamiliar with Harding Park. I've never been to the park. It doesn't necessarily have a lot of emotional weight because of that. And I think to some people who don't use golf courses, sometimes when they do encounter them, it does feel a little bit exclusionary. Back in May, as golf courses in San Francisco were reopening in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, Sasha Perigo wrote an article titled Keep SF Golf Courses Closed. The subhead? Golf courses are an inefficient use of land and money that could be better used for housing. To me, I see my column more as raising questions for people, less than specific policy proposals. So there were questions in that, like, should golf be managed by the city at all? Should golf exist in cities at all? I would not argue that golf should not exist in cities at all. My argument would be, do we necessarily need six city-owned golf courses? Could the Parks and Rec Department either redevelop one of those into a park that like more people in the city would use or maybe even affordable housing? Tell me a little bit about the urgency of the affordable housing problem in San Francisco right now. So from 2010 to 2018, the city added 200,000 jobs total and just 24,000 new housing units. And so a study by the Kaiser Marston Associates estimates that 
18,229 units affordable to low-wage households will need to be built between 2016 and 2026 in order to match the projected job growth for low-wage workers. And so only 974 units have been built so far. And so that's just 5% of the amount we need. So in the next six years, we need to build almost 18,000 units specifically of affordable subsidized housing to make sure the problem doesn't get worse. On top of that, when rent control departments change hands, landlords get to reset the rates. And the market rates in San Francisco right now? Yeah, they're pretty high. To conclude, not only do we have a huge shortage, not only is the shortage getting worse, but we're actually, in some cases, in some neighborhoods, losing affordable units faster than we're building them. And kind of like the reason that people target golf courses in specific for affordable housing is, first of all, obviously they take up a lot of land in the city. I was really surprised when doing like the back of the napkin calculations for writing this column, that when you include the private golf courses, my understanding is there's nine public and private within the city limits. And that actually accounts for 5% of the city's land mass, which I was really surprised by. So I think my question would be that, is that too much? And also, there's been a lot of coverage about how the cost of development in San Francisco is higher than anywhere else in the nation. And one of those costs is land. And so when you're looking at city-owned land already, you get to skip that cost. And therefore, the cost of development is lower, rents are lower, it might be more financially feasible for the city to develop affordable housing on that property. Obviously, this would all be more complicated to do than to say. Golf course land would have to be rezoned for one thing, and then the city would somehow have to pay for it all. We just don't have the money to build. If we rezoned all the golf courses and said we were going to redevelop golf courses and made more space to build, we would need to do that in order to close the numbers that we have. But if we did that, we wouldn't be able to develop on them today anyways because we don't have the money. If we took out Harding Park, we would not be able to build affordable housing on that right now. So the question is more about ideals. What kind of city should San Francisco be? And should it devote as much space as it does to golf? There is a moral question of like, how do we use, what is the best way to use every space? I think it's ignorance talking about uh, it's not a good use of the land. Because I think if you went out there and you actually watched what people were actually playing the game of golf at these different facilities, the Muni specifically, I don't think you would get the stuffy, rich, white kind of stereotype that we're accustomed to. Maybe people see it as a little bit exclusionary because it's like, oh, this land isn't for me. This is land that like wealthy people use. I can't tell you how many people I've met from different walks of life, from lawyers to police officers to community activists, everybody going out there playing golf. It's the one thing that brings everyone together. I do think there's a lot of misconceptions, like you're saying about who golfs. I think that people think of it as a very wealthy white person sport. And I'm hearing you say that that's not always true. African-American, Asian-American, you're going to get old Irishmen, you're going to get old Italians, you're going to get women, you're going to get older senior citizens, young people. So from your perspective, 
do you think the number of city-owned golf courses in San Francisco makes sense? You have all of these different areas and, and all the many different parks all throughout the city. So many different areas that aren't even being utilized by the youth or adults or, or, or people of any age. I feel like we're picking on golf. And so one thing is you could make that feel more accessible to people and less exclusionary. And this is where I tell people, I challenge you to come out and just stand at the clubhouse, hang out at the first tee, hang out at the, the 18th hole and, and just see the people that are coming by. I guarantee you, if you go out to Harding Park, you're going to see a group of golfers that does not represent the stereotype that so many people have in their minds. I think that a lot of people are under, there's a lot of understandably, a lot of anger about class issues in San Francisco. There's the haves, and then there's kind of like the have-nots. There really isn't a middle class. I think disproportionately, golfers are white and male. But I, I do think it just becomes um, an easy target of class anger, class-based anger. I grew up lower middle class, and, and we didn't have a whole lot of outlets. We would just show up to the park and play ball, and, and that's what we had. Well, they defunded all of those after-school programs, and there really isn't a lot of things to do for people who can do stuff on a budget. I think sports and recreation are disproportionately used by wealthier white people. It's frustrating for me. And that's sad. More people should have access to them because I think there is obviously a lot of very demonstrable health and happiness benefits to getting outside and participating in any sport, whatever it is. None of my buddies, and we got a lot of golfer friends that 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 go all every single week and go somewhere around the city. None of them are country club guys, yet they all want to go out, bang the ball around for 40 bucks and have a great three hours where they can decompress, you know, turn the cell phone off and not think about the stresses of their normal life and their family and things like that. And they just want to go out and have fun. That's the outlet that golf gives I'm not against the Parks and Recs Department giving people affordable chances to golf. I think that's fantastic. But we have to consider who in the city is not receiving any baseline services at all. And I do just think, you know, golf, the optics of golf uh, are just particularly um, stark. So there is a valid discussion about equitable and proportional land use. I get it. But where you have to at least start the discussion in a community like San Francisco is with your existing physical plant. The golf courses are there. If we were starting from scratch, these courses probably wouldn't be built because people would find other things they want. But they were built and they are there. And the question is, are we going to preserve them? Are we going to preserve our history? Are we going to preserve these things that have been so beneficial to us? It's an ongoing discussion. You have to just view it not just from an insular, I'm a golfer. It's from a perspective of, this is my community. What do I want it to look like? What do I want here? And if you had a community that didn't have any golf courses, that would be a pretty hollow community to me. I probably wouldn't want to live there. Now, maybe somebody else does. And so, yeah, the market's going to choose. And to golfers who like their municipal golf courses, stand up for them, fight for them. Because if you don't, they won't be there. This was the eighth episode of Fried Egg Stories. It was produced and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, with editing and engineering by Jay Virick. Our executive producer is Andy Johnson. Big thanks to Ron Krojcik, Sean Ellsburn, Joe Shasky, Sasha Perigo, 
and Bo Links. Bo, by the way, is the author of several books, including the novel Follow the Wind and a collection of golf poems. Thanks for listening.